0: Alright, this is Hebrews 13 and verse 20, but before we go there, let's start with prayer, okay? Good morning, everybody, by the way. Welcome. Uh, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the, the many, many months that we've had to open up the book of Hebrews together. And what a joy to uh, discuss our mutual salvation the glories of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the blood atonement, the high priesthood, the throne of grace. Um there's so many things that we've learned and what it means to have faith in You. And thank You, Lord. And we want to continue to share the Bible together and grow in the grace that You have for us, the grace of sanctification. And we pray today as we again open Your Word that we gain wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Hebrews 13 and verse 20. We discussed, there's, there's just so many uh, theological concepts in each little phrase of this, of this verse. The God of peace talked about that and um, brought up from the dead. I pointed out that there's unusual terminology there and literally led out from the dead. And as I mentioned last week, the reason for this unusual terminology led out from the dead was to link the Jesus with Moses in the Passover. And so the analogy is, inasmuch as God led the people out of Egypt through the water and brought them to Himself, the greater Moses, Jesus, and that's one of the themes of Hebrews, that Jesus is greater than Moses, did something greater than bringing people out of Egypt Jesus came out of the dead and He led the people out from the realm of the dead into life because of His resurrection. So that's the analogy there. Um, then, uh, uh, let out. I think I mentioned that. Uh, it's the same. Maybe somebody could look this up. This, the, that phrase, the let out, is the same as the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament of Genesis 50. Twenty four. Carla, could you look up Genesis fifty twenty four? Oh. And Robert has the he's in charge of Mike. Five zero two four.
1: Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob.
0: Yeah, bring you up. It's the same same Greek as uh, Hebrews 13.20. So it's, it's, it's a link to the whole idea of coming up out of the land of Egypt. But here the greater Moses comes up out of the dead and conquers sin and death. And then we talked about that. So then the next phrase here is the great shepherd of the sheep. And I showed you many verses in Hebrews, where the same word, uh, from the Greek, Megon, where we get our prefix Mega, means great. It's our great Savior, great salvation, great high priest, and that's a theme. And so, again, it's just amazing how the Holy Spirit inspired the author of Hebrews has written this, uh, book, and how this Hebrews 1320 that we're studying right now, sums up the themes that we've been studying all the way through Hebrews, and makes grammatical links back into Hebrews. So he's the great shepherd of the sheep, and this is certainly a key theme in the Bible, the God is my shepherd." Remember we talked about Psalm 23 last week? "God is my shepherd." And I actually preached on that because in Genesis 48, Jacob confessed God as his shepherd. And that's where that theme begins, in Genesis. And so uh, there are so many truths in the Bible that start in Genesis and are found all the way through to Revelation. And I don't know how anybody could study the Bible and not believe it was inspired by God. It's, it's just amazing. Nobody, could, nobody would be smart enough to figure out all these things that are tied together in the Bible. So Jesus is shepherd. We talked about that. And then we were discussing the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, that's a very important idea. And in the Bible, all the way starting in the book of Genesis, it is taught that there's a necessity for a blood atonement. And the Old Testament says the life is in the blood. And when Adam and Eve sinned and they were naked, God brought what? The skins of animals. And what kind of a sacrifice did God accept when Cain and Abel brought sacrifices? The animal sacrifice. And then there are other allusions to this in Genesis. In Is it Genesis 22 where Isaac was brought up to be sacrificed? When um, God told Abraham to bring Isaac up, then he raised the knife, and, and the Lord stopped him and showed him a ram caught in a thicket. And so again, we have a prefiguring of Christ being sacrificed and a need for blood atonement. And then there's a passage that is um, alluded to here probably, and that's Exodus 24.8. So, Robert, why don't you read that one? Exodus 24.8.
2: Exodus 24.8 So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance
0: with all these words. So there they had literal blood that was sprinkled and it was called the blood of the covenant. Now, the same idea comes up at the Last Supper. Right? What did Jesus say at the Last Supper? Carl, you should know. <laughs> this is my body that's been... Yeah, the blood he talks about the, the blood of the covenant. okay? So Jesus' blood ratifies the New covenant. and according to Hebrews, it speaks better things than the blood of Abel. And so and that speak there is present. So what it's saying is that the blood of Jesus continues to speak. Now, figuratively, what that means is Jesus' blood is saying it is finished. It is saying that there's forgiveness. It is saying that we can have a right covenant relationship with God because of what He did once for all. And that's a theme throughout Hebrews is that the blood that Jesus shed was once for all. Under the old covenant, they had to continually shed blood. (laughs) (laughs) Over here. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's very interesting that Moses, who in the Old Testament represents the law, also pointed to the blood. Right. Absolutely. So all of the blood that was shed under the, the Old Covenant was prefiguring the one shedding of blood that God would accept, which was Christ. Alright, so uh, it's very important. What um, is uh I don't see it. Uh, Jim Jim Bukowski here? Yeah, there you are. What were you saying earlier to me about the blood? Here comes it, Mike.
2: I was saying that I uh, that I was reading recently that the uh, that Luther had said that there is about five problems that that sinful man has, and was sin, death, and the devil, but he also had problems with the the law and the wrath of God. And, of course, the wrath of God and the law were accomplished in the atonement, but that was only by the blood. And for some of the things in my past, we got centered on all the things of Jesus' victory over all of these things, but it still came down to only the thing of of uh, victory through the shed blood yeah. of Jesus
0: Christ. And so we sing songs about that now that we didn't used to sing so much. Certainly.
2: Right, and I remember way back when I was, when I used to be a charismatic, I remember we used to get all kinds of Bible songs. And people would come up with Bible songs almost every week. But we never had any Bible songs about the blood and the sacrificial and substitutional atonement of of Christ. They were always, I should say almost always, about his victory, which were truths, but but to the neglect of his shed blood. And you don't find too many of those songs. But they were in the hymns of the old people.
0: They were in the hymns. And that was from my early Christian days, that was a wonderful legacy of what I learned uh, as a brand-new Christian, because the people that uh, led me to the Lord, they were always singing about the blood. And um, in the Pentecostal church, in uh, North Central Bible College, we, were, we had a lot of songs about the blood. But sadly, in that movement, that's kind of gone away too. Uh, and uh, we tend to emphasize in our songs what we feel to be most important to us. And it's not that it's wrong to sing songs about a lot of different themes, But there should be something about atonement in our worship, because you find it in the Book of Revelation. Uh, (laughs) This makes my life easier. See, we put this up on the internet, and otherwise, I can't. Nobody gets to hear your question. Okay.
1: Uh, My son's best friend, um, Ed Olin, is not a Christian, but he's. Life and him have a lot of discussions back and forth in the summer when he was with us. He was, we were discussing the Bible and the validity of the Bible and he made the comment that, um, you know, that all the New Testament writers just wrote in, um, the details about Jesus that fit in with the prophecies from the Old Testament oh, so that it would look like he had fulfilled, fulfilled them kind of thing. Well, this last week I was studying through Hebrews and looking at this this same issue of jesus being a sacrificial you know his blood being in the sacrifice and all of the things in the old testament that's just woven in the very fiber of it you know that you just all listed off and it's just so rich and thick and for any one you know for any person to be able to to create such a, a rich a rich um story uh and and Have Jesus satisfy and so beautifully portray everything that foreshadowed him in the Old Testament. It's just unbelievable. It's illogical because it's so well done.
0: Yeah, you couldn't make it up. You wouldn't be smart enough (laughs) to make it up. The easiest to explain. Wasn't there a book that made a claim to Passover plot? Remember that? It was claiming that somebody just kind of looked at all these prophecies and then concocted a story that says Jesus actually fulfilled the thing, but he never really did. it's but there's a, there's all kinds of problems with that and, and the biggest problem with that whole theory is the witnesses of the resurrection you know it's one thing for somebody to make up a story about how he 's going to raise himself from the dead to, to make it all true and so uh in apologetics, one of the most important events is uh, is uh the resurrection, and that 's where Christianity is proven or disproven and uh so we n- need to be reminded of that. So it talks about the blood of the eternal covenant and uh, it emphasizes the fact that the covenant we have with God is eternal and it will not pass away and it won't be um, made obsolete. (laughs) Oh, I was going to mention the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has music. Not Not the music, not the bars and notes, but the words. Because they're singing in heaven. And one of the things they sing about in heaven is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. And we sing. We have put some of those to music and we sing those. And so it shows us that for all eternity we'll still be singing about the blood of the Lamb and what He's done for us. The whole idea of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is found in the book of uh, Revelation. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb also is where we have the fourth cup. I was talking about that last Sunday in church, that they had four cups at the Passover that corresponded to the four promises in Exodus chapter 6. And the fourth one we don't have until the marriage supper of the Lamb. Every time we have communion... We are having the third cup, as I read Paul, because Paul calls it the cup of blessing. Is that right? Carl's the expert, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you are. <laughs> and if you ever come to the that the seder that we do, where Carl explains the Last Supper and what was all the terminology and typology is, it's a wonderful learning event. But when when Paul calls communion the cup of blessing. He's alluding to that third cup, which is also called the cup of redemption. And it corresponds to the promise, I will redeem you. All right. Then the fourth cup that Jesus didn't celebrate has been waiting. He said, I won't drink this fruit of the vine until I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. It's been waiting for 2,000 years. All right. And every time Christians have communion throughout church history, They've been having that third cup and saying, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we want to have the fourth one. Now, the fourth one corresponded to the promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's also in the book of Revelation. It's one of the great promises fulfilled at the end of the book of Revelation. So when we gather at the Merry Supper of the Lamb, we'll have the fourth cup and we'll all be gathered together, all the saints from all the ages All the redeemed of the Lord. And as one glorious body, (laughs) victorious and perfected, we will have the fourth cup. And it will be true that I will be your God and you'll be my people. And it will be a great ingathering. Yes, Robert? I was just going to read that verse in Revelation
2: uh, chapter 5, verse 9, it talks about a new song. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast
0: slain and didst purchase from God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. <laughs> wow. Wow. There it is. Thank you. That's, that's, that's what I was thinking of. And so the blood is mentioned in, in, in Revelation, in in heaven. So... Thou art worthy. Uh, we're here. We sing. Don't we sing? We sing a couple songs out of that. Worthy <laughs> is the Lamb. Is that how it goes? I have got to be careful. People are here listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> if I start singing, we'll lose all of the people <laughs> that ever tune in, and <laughs> that'll be the end of that. <laughs> yeah. Then I'll say, "Don't do that." <laughs> okay. Yes.
1: There's one thing we don't have to do when we're in the kingdom, and that is we don't need to pray.
0: It, what's that? We don't have to pray. I, I think there'll be prayers in heaven. What do you think? Good question. Is there prayer in heaven? Yeah, worship. You know, I guess... I don't know. I never even thought of that before. I'm sure... we. Yeah, we will be praising, but I suppose we won't have, if there's nothing wrong with us, we won't have any, ask to ask, we won't have to ask God to heal our aches and pains, will they? I was just wondering what uh,
2: you know, if it's a possibility there'd be prayer for those that are still on earth.
0: Um, I don't know. I, I, see, some people say the cloud of witnesses, they take that literally, and they say that that's the people in heaven actually watching this. But that's if when we studied Hebrews and we looked at that, we determined that's not the correct interpretation. That these witnesses are the the saints, not literally watching us. And one of my reasons for that conclusion is I don't think heaven be heaven if we'd have to watch all the mess that we're in down here. (laughs) I I don't I don't think they want to know. (laughs) There's got to be something better to do than watch us muck it all up.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we'll see. All right. Um I was going to make some citations here of William Lane. I think I did some of this last time. Um the allusion he says there's an allusion to Zechariah nine eleven in the Septuagint, as well as the construction of the strophe in Hebrews thirteen twenty shows that the phrase concerning the eternal covenant is to be understood causally because of the blood or by virtue of the blood and is to be referred to the participle who led out because of the blood of the eternal covenant. So he says uh, the blood is the reason for Jesus leading out. Then he says this, quote, Jesus was led out from among the dead by virtue of his unique and unrepeatable pouring out of his own blood. The writer correctly interpreted the phrase the waterless pit in Zechariah 911, Septuagint, as the realm of the dead. The writer understands that Jesus died on the cross as a covenant sacrifice, and that he entered into the heavenly sanctuary and there sprinkled his own blood prior to the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus occurred by virtue of the sprinkling of the blood in the heavenly sanctuary and the establishment of the new covenant. Um, the phrase, and then he quotes the Greek, "Accordingly," does not mean with the blood of the tournament, by, but rather by virtue of the blood of the covenant. So that's uh, some important theology to understand. So the, the 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 blood is the cause of Jesus leading out from the dead and being able to bring us to himself.
2: Oh, yeah. I also think that this is an excellent passage for the everlasting covenant. It's before and forever that God hasn't changed his plan. It's been a process, but it's not plan B or C. And then for the people that say God doesn't know everything or that man's will, it says everlasting. God had this plan even before.
0: Right, it's an eternal covenant. That's a good point. There are there's some really bad theology out there, and I've heard preachers say that well, God didn't know these things were going to happen, so he had to come up with an idea. <laughs> but it's just really bad. There's no end to the bad theology. But it, it but it talks about the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So, I mean, it's very clear this is an eternal plan and that God isn't caught by surprise. Uh, no, that's okay. It's just a quick
2: comment. Bob. There is an end to the bad theology and it's talked about in the book of Revelation. There's an end, yeah.
0: <laughs> God puts it into it himself. The phrase blood of the covenant alludes to Jesus' death as a covenant sacrifice. And then we already looked up Hebrews, uh, Exodus 24 8. And the quali- qualifying adjective, um, eternal celebrates the fact that the atoning work of Jesus has eternal validity. So, um, I was going to read some more. The New Covenant is the promised eternal covenant replaces the Old Covenant, which is our, it was ready to vanish. Hebrews 8.13 The gift of the New Covenant is not provisional or temporary, but God's final costly forgiveness, which in no way glosses over or condones our sin, is altogether worthy of God, who in all his ways is holy, righteous, and true. Quoting Cranfield, who's also a very good uh, scholar. uh, through Through his blood, the exalted Jesus once for all accomplished the atonement of the people of God and established the eternal covenant. And after his resurrection, Jesus became the leader of the new covenant community, having satisfied the preconditions for the acceptable worship of God. Christians belong to the fold of the great shepherd because they've been bonded to him by the eternal covenant. So back to our benediction. Uh, Brought up from the dead, the great shepherd through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. Even Jesus our Lord. And again, um, the great theology uh, of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And uh he is the head of the church. He is the Lord over all. It says every knee shall confess, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. And as we've said many times, it's either something we do now in faith or refuse to do now and are forced to when it's too late. Even the rebellious and the wicked will be at the final judgment forced to confess that he's Lord, but thank God we can do it now. (laughs) We can say, thank you, Lord Jesus, and and, and express our love for Him because of all He's done for us. Jesus is superior to, to all others. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the high priest. Jesus is greater than all of the saints of the Old Testament. Jesus has supremacy over all. Let's look up some passages um, Larry, if you could look up Psalm 80 in verse 1, Carl, Acts 5 in verse 30. And uh, Welcome, by the way. This is Lincoln, Carl's friend. And I won't make any more snide comments about that. <laughs> once, once is enough. I, I don't know why Carl just seems like somebody that was fun to pick on. I don't, you know. <laughs> okay, Lincoln, could you look up Acts 10, 40, and 41? And... Um Laura. Is that right? I got it. Laura, Acts seventeen, thirty one. No, I get no, I'm sorry, I need help. What's your name? Claire. Claire, that's right. I knew that. One Thessalonians five twenty three. One Thessalonians five twenty three and then Lois Mark fourteen twenty four. And that'll be our cross references. The first one is Psalm eighty and verse one. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Okay, now there the shepherd of Israel is God. God is the shepherd of Israel, according to Psalm 80 in verse 1. So that's a theme that's really, uh, I was just thinking about that as I was preparing my sermon for today, which is in Luke 3, and I found another Way, the deity of Christ is expressed in more ways than people realize in the New Testament. Uh, you know, when the Jehovah Witnesses try to deny it, uh, it it's just you can't deny the deity of Christ. There's just dozens and dozens of ways. A lot of them we maybe wouldn't think of. One of the ways the deity of Christ is expressed is by attributing Christ things that the Old Testament attributed only to God. Okay, so the, when it's said that God is the shepherd of Israel, then, or Yahweh, or the Tetragrammaton, however that's supposed to be pronounced, and then you come to John 10, and Jesus says, I am the shepherd of the sheep, he's claiming to be God. Amen. And, and there's so many others like it, and there's going to be one in Luke 3 that I found today where there's a passage in the Old Testament that's attributed to God, and attributed to Jesus Christ in the New by John the Baptist. Uh, again, many, many of these are throughout the Bible. And we should be well aware of that because people try to deny the deity of Christ. Okay, uh, Acts 5 and verse 30. Uh,
2: the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you seized and killed by hanging him
0: on a tree. Oh, now that was... Uh, who was preaching there, Carl? Was that Stephen? Uh, Peter. Peter. Yep. Yeah, Stephen was a little later. That was yep. in chapter 7. So, that's interesting how they preached in Acts. Uh, I'm going to talk today in my sermon about the law. And it may seem kind of hard. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just trying to be biblical. And when you read John the Baptist, what he preached, it's very devastating. It's It's amazingly harsh. John the Baptist in Luke 3 says, you brood of vipers, and he's talking to everybody. He didn't distinguish everybody's a brood of vipers. Well, what kind of a way is that to talk to people? (laughs) Well, uh, John the Baptist isn't just trying to be mean and nasty. He's trying to create a sense of insecurity so that we can find the glorious free gift that Jesus offers to remedy that. And if we think we're children of Abraham when we're really sons of vipers, we may have false security. And so if you think of what the passage that Carl just quoted, Peter is is saying he's he's attributing a sinfulness to his audience, right? Why? To, because he wants them to see that Jesus was raised from the dead and this one whom they crucified could be their Savior if they would turn to him. And so that there's an answer, there's a solution. It's called salvation. So that's why the law is important because it shows us our need for the gospel. Does that make sense? So we emphasize that, and you know who has kind of made a whole ministry of that is Ray Comfort, and he he continually that's his ministry to the church to get us to see the need to preach the law and the gospel, and. Uh, Todd Friel is now working with him. They have a radio show together. And uh, he, it's, a, it's a needed thing. It's, it somehow it kind of just got lost in a lot of preaching for the last 30, 40 years. And, and I, I thank God that Ray Comfort is bringing us back to what Luther taught and what we should have known. Okay, uh, Acts uh, 10, 40 and 41. God raised him up on a third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Okay, so the claim in Acts is that Jesus literally was bodily raised from the dead and he appeared to appointed witnesses. Now, a witness is somebody who is qualified to testify about something, like in a court of law. If you're going to bring somebody into a court of law to be a witness, they need to have seen what happened or to have some very important evidence to share or they're no good as a witness, right? So these appointed witnesses were the, the disciples and the others uh, that Paul talked about in First Corinthians 15, and these are credible witnesses. These were people who not only saw Jesus as, he was, as the resurrected Christ, they saw him in the flesh, raised from the dead, they were willing to risk their lives to testify to that. And many of these witnesses were killed to silence their testimony. And, uh, if you look at apologetics, that's one of the evidences for the resurrection is what motive would they have had to make this up? You know, uh, what did they gain out of making up a story about a resurrection that never happened? They didn't gain money. They were killed. They were persecuted. They were hated. They lost all of their friends and family. And, uh, the best, the best Evidence or the best uh, reason why they would have said that Jesus was raised is that he actually was. And that's a very strong argument. And that's really where the central part of Christian apologetics. Okay, then we had Acts 17.31.
1: For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead.
0: Okay. So, Paul told the Athenian philosophers that Jesus was raised from the dead and that that was proof to the whole world. Yes? If you
2: notice, he never mentions
0: Jesus. He says, the man he appointed. Yeah, um, the man he appointed, but it's talking about Jesus. Well, yes, it's talking about Jesus, but even when, how powerful the resurrection Yeah, the man he appointed, this was Christ. So, now what, what did the philosophers do when they heard about Christ in the resurrection? They sneered. They mocked. They said, Well, we'll hear you. What is this babbler talking about? We'll hear you some other day on this. Um, it wasn't a popular message. But what's important to Paul and to all Christian preachers, there should be, isn't whether our message is popular, it's whether it's true. Right? <laughs> That's what's important. Now, it said, it said also, I used that verse that you just quoted, Laura at the debate about the emergent church. Remember that? Some of you were at the debate. I cited that verse. And now there's a reason why I cited that verse in the debate. Because the emergent idea is that logic, truth, evidence isn't valid. Postmodern people don't believe in evidence. Postmodern people don't believe in rational proof. And so, I know that's what they say. So, when I gave my opening statement, I quoted Acts 17 and verse 30. That God said that He had furnished proof to all men. So, when Christians say, there's no such thing as proof, you can just have a mystical experience and that's your reality. uh, They're throwing away, how would you say it, they're throwing away what God's given us. Evidence that God gave to all men. And then furthermore, that verse says that God will judge the world based on that evidence. So that was another thing they don't believe in, final judgment. So I just kept throwing out all that stuff they don't believe in to see if they get mad. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if he got mad, he got red. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, he got very red. But uh evidence is valid whether people say they believe in it or not. Okay? And it's really kind of a silly argument that evidence isn't valid. Because if if the postmodern idea were true, our whole legal system is is a farce. Why would you have a legal system and bring in witnesses and decide whether somebody is going to live or die in some states or go to jail for the rest of his life or go free based on reason, arguments, and evidence if none of those things are valid? You'd have to just say, close up all the courts and send the judges home because we can't know what's true anyhow. So, as Francis Schaeffer said in his books in the 60s and when he wrote these books, that this whole, um, mystical, irrational idea about religion is unlivable. That if you really took it to be true, you couldn't even live on the face of the earth. You'd have to have utter chaos. And so we go about having court and having science and looking for evidence and deciding what's true and false. And then when we come to our religion, we say we can't know anything. We just have to take a leap of faith. We just have to have blind faith because we can't know what's true. Isn't that... It's just unbelievable. But Schaefer, if you want to read Schaefer, he deals with that very forthrightly. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Claire?
1: Uh, May God Himself, the God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ.
0: Yes, you know, that's another benediction. It's sort of a a prayer wish benediction. May the Lord and then then a statement about what would be a good outcome that God would do. And in that case, the prayer wish, the benediction, is that the, the saints would be fully sanctified. And preserved blameless. So that's a good, that's a good prayer. Um, and then uh, we had uh, Mark fourteen twenty four.
1: And he said unto them, This is my blood of the new testament, which is shed for you for many.
0: This is the blood of the new testament. Did you know the word covenant and testament are the same? Okay, they're synonymous, something like that. <laughs> Whatever that's supposed to sound like. Uh, Kathy?
1: One thing that I've noticed in the newspapers and in other places is that the, pu- the general public is now questioning a lot of the judges now.
0: Okay. All right, let's go to Hebrews 13.21. Now, this is just a continuation of this benediction. So, so equip you, this is again this wish, this prayer, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in of that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So now uh, the word equip is used, and it means to make complete. The prayer is for God to supply whatever might be deficient in the saints, and make them complete in Christ. And what that looks like, in other words, growing into fullness or completion in Christ, is that we be doing His will and living a way that would be pleasing to Him. So this is a prayer for God to do what we know God's committed to do. Now, maybe we should just talk about this whole genre of having a benediction or a prayer like this or a wish. Why would the apostles pray for something they already know God said He would do? Doesn't it say in Philippians that God is at work in you to will and to do His good pleasure? So we know that to be true. So why would we pray for something that we already know is true anyhow? Uh, Bill? Okay. Reaffirmation. We're supposed to pray. To reaffirm, and and you know another thing I think that we should always keep in mind is that God has means, and means are very important. If it weren't for means, um, we would kind of be fatalistic in our ideas. In other words, uh, if you study this enough, I know it can give you a a, a brain ache, you know, <laughs> but if you spend enough time studying this, you start wondering about. If everything's certain because God knows everything, all right, then it's going to be the way it's going to be anyhow. So then we're not really free, and, and you just start thinking about all this stuff. It just doesn't get you anywhere. But if you believe in means, then I think that there's a wonderful tension that that, that should always stay there. And, and I'm going to talk about this in the application part of my sermon. Somebody, somebody. There was Reed's CIC was going to a church and he was unhappy with what the pastor was doing at the church, so he gave the pastor some of my stuff uh, to, to try to contend with him that he should be preaching the Bible. And the pastor came back and said, "Well, find out what that Bob does in his church. I bet he's got traditions too." His 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 appoint. I think his point was everybody has traditions and you just. You can do whatever you want in your church, whatever your traditions might be, and you can't tell everybody else what they ought to be doing. And so the guy asked me about that, the reader, and my answer was, well, there are some things that aren't optional. Yeah, everybody has traditions, and we traditionally sing hymns, and then we preach the Word. Okay? I admit, we could preach the Word first and then sing later. (laughs) I admit, that's a tradition. But I said what's not optional are the means of grace. That's not optional. And I referred him to an article I wrote on means of grace. And the guy says, we've got a doctrine of that. Is pastor saying grace is conditional or contingent? Grace is contingent? And so I just went back a little bit of theology to the guy, and I said the only ones who would deny, you'd have to be a hyper-Calvinist or something to say there is no such thing as anything contingent, Ultimately, yeah, everything that's going to happen will happen. God's going to do what He's going to do. But He uses means. And so I sent back the passage as a rebuttal in Romans 10. How will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless there's a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? So Paul's saying that salvation, we know salvation is by grace alone, right? We believe grace alone. God is the author of salvation. It's not a cooperative effort. God does it, but he del- there's still contingencies in the sense that Paul is saying, if we don't go preach the gospel, how are they going to believe in the gospel? So the contingency is that God chose to use a preacher. Now, ultimately, it's non-contingent in the sense that well, God will save everybody whose names in the land's book of life. Okay, but if we neglect means we will fall into hyper-Calvinism. And hyper-Calvinism, amongst other things, is saying God's going to save all the elect anyhow, so why should we be concerned about sending out missionaries? Why should we preach the gospel? And I deny that. I deny that, doctor. I believe God will save who He's going to save, but He's going to do it through us preaching the gospel. <laughs> and if we don't preach the gospel, uh, I'm sure God will raise somebody else up and will do it, but woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel then I'm a false shepherd and I'm uh, failing my uh, sacred duty and I shall be held accountable by God on, a, on the final day because the shepherds that don't warn people of, of the disaster that's coming, their blood is on their head. Okay, uh, uh, Doug.
2: <laughs> well, you've gone on and on so long now,
0: I can't remember what my... <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: Sorry. <laughs> you got to write these things down. I'm along with it.
2: But I, I I just wanted to. Uh, we were Lord, talking about I, prayer. Why yeah, pray? Yeah, right. Well, um, I use the Lord's Prayer as an outline for my personal prayers. But when I come to uh, Thy Kingdom come, I think, well, oh Lord, the kingdom has already come to me. I have access to. You know your whole kingdom right now. So I don't realize some of these things sometime on the spur of the moment, but I do have access to them. Yeah, So I must be praying when the Lord asks us to pray that. We must be praying for other people then.
0: Well, no, we're praying for the second coming, I believe. Because it says um, uh, that there's an already not yet tension to this. The already is we enter the kingdom by faith and the king reigns in our lives. But the not yet is when the king literally reigns on the earth, and his will is literally being done in all the earth, so we 're praying for the not yet part, and it 's almost like the very what 's the last prayer in the Bible? does anybody know what what 's the very last prayer in the whole bible? <laughs> yes, several people said the same thing, even so come quickly lord jesus that 's the last prayer in the Bible, and I think that when we have communion we 're um, objectively through the act of communion praying that prayer because it says we show forth the Lord's death until he come. And so I, I, when you pray that, Doug, I would, would think of, Lord, come soon. We'd like to have that merry supper. Okay, good. Yes. I think that's one of the reasons why we do ask the Lord for help in our prayers is because oftentimes... You mentioned earlier, you, you should preach the gospel. And if you don't preach the gospel, you're accountable to God. And God promises to save these people, so he's going to send somebody else. He will accomplish his sovereign will. But if, if, if you're unwilling to participate in the program, yeah. he'll use someone else. Right. So we need to pray that God will use us in his plan. Amen. And so uh, another way to look at this, we're talking about why would we pray about something that God's going to do, or that God already promised He would do. Is that He is allowing us the wonderful sacred privilege of participation, okay? And He uses our prayers. God has means. Uh, prayers are a means that God uses, and uh, the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It says in in James. And so what uh, what we need to do. Again, if you want to get the brain ache, you can try to figure it all out and read Jonathan Edwards on the bondage of the will or the freedom of the will. and You can try to figure all of this out. The other thing to do is just accept everything the Bible says. (laughs) That's the easy version. The Bible says God is sovereign and that the future is known by God. And if it's known by God, it has to be certain. And the Bible also says to pray, to preach the Gospel, and that God uses us and He has means. And we have real freedom. We have real freedom. I believe that we have freedom to make decisions. But yet, I know that God is at work in that. So, He equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. And you see this balance there. We're given moral commands by the Bible. Here's what we're supposed to do. We have guidance. We know what we ought to do. But it says that God's working in us to do His will. So, it's both and. One of the ways God works in us is by us reading the Bible so we see what His will is and God motivating us to take action to do it. That's God working in us. And if God wasn't working in us, we wouldn't care. If you remember, I mean, unless you were converted at a very young age, most of us can remember being unconverted. Okay? Now, I can remember being unconverted. Now, what did you feel like when you were unconverted when somebody told you the moral law of God? <laughs> yeah, it just made you mad. I know when I was at Iowa State, if those Bible thumpers came around, and they started saying, well, God says you can't do this, and God says you can't do that. It just made me want to do it all the more. I'm going to go do worse things. and I don't show them. So, no, that's what it's like when God's not working in you. But when you're converted, then you look into the law. And what does that song say? And then I trembled at the law I spurned. And what troubles us as now is that we know we're not doing it as well as we should. Is that is that not correct? Right. See, now, converted, it does bother me that I'm not doing what I should do. And I need prayer that God would be working in me to do what's pleasing in His sight. And that's what this prayer is. So do you see the radical change that happens? And it's part of the sign of conversion. As somebody was saying, who brought it up in Sunday school? I think it was Linda. Said one of the signs, if you want to know whether somebody's converted or not, ask them if they think they're a good person. Have you heard that before? Maybe it came from Ray Comfort or something. (laughs) Okay, see, there's Ray again. All right, well, I think it's actually a very interesting thing. Now, if you ask a Christian, are you a good person, we'll always hesitate a little bit. You know, because you have to stop and think about it. For one thing, we remember the verse where Jesus said, there's none good but God. So if we're looking at that standard, we'd say, no, I don't think I really am. Or we might think about it and say, well, I pray that God would work in me so that I'm more like the person I should be. We might say that. But we won't just come blatantly, oh yeah, I'm a good person. A a true Christian hesitates to say that. But if you're not converted, and somebody asks you that, you'll say yes, just almost without hesitation. Yes, I'm a good person. Is that right? (coughs) That's right. Okay. (laughs) All right. That's what we'll say. Why? Because Satan has deluded us. To keep us from seeing the truth of the gospel, it says in second Corinthians that he blinds the minds of the unbelieving, lest they see the glory of the light of the gospel. so he blinds our minds by making us think we're good when all the evidence showing us we really are you know um, working in us to do his will uh, 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 let's read it again, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight so god's will. Is is to work what's pleasing to God in this redeemed group, the church, sinners saved by grace, so that people would actually be uh, being be being. I don't know if that's good English, but it's it's um, uh, there's a tense in the Greek that that is saying that uh, that we are being conformed to the image of Christ as a c- continual process. Now when we say that, Ryan has a book he's written, I'm, I just started, I'm, I'm helping him proofread it, I got a chapter read the other night. Ryan's written a book about sanctification that, that deals with all of these issues about what sanctification is all about. And one of the things, when we say that, when we believe in progressive sanctification, that we're being conformed to the image of Christ, that God's changing us, we're not claiming that we're always making progress. Um because sometimes Christians can go backwards. There is such a thing as backsliding. We're strictly against it. <laughs> but uh, we know that it does happen, okay? And uh, we were watching a series of videos with the men when we used to have our Saturday morning men's thing uh, on the Westminster Confession. And one of the things that he was talking about, do you remember that, Carla? Didn't you watch that? Well, the one where he's on a road that's supposed to be east yeah, he uses an illustration about sanctification. He says there's a highway in Pennsylvania, was it in Pennsylvania? Somewhere, he was on this highway, and if you read the sign, it says East 90. Let's just take, for example, East 90. But because it's mountainous, sometimes East 90 is going directly west. All right? And, and he says that's a good illustration sometimes of what can happen in in the, in the issue of sanctification. If you're on the road and you stay on the road, you shall end up east, which would be in the image of Christ where we're going. But sometimes you would never know it because you seem to be going west. <laughs> and, uh, so, so we're not claiming we're not saying that any time you might be uh not doing so good is proof that you were never converted. That's what I'm trying to say. But if you are converted, you don't like going west when you're supposed to go east, and the Holy Spirit will convict you and get it turned around. Okay? All right. Uh, yes?
1: I have a question. Um, when you say that Christians... Uh, uh, Show forth the glory of God. Um, let's say a non-Christian, like my brother, who's a lawyer, sees that in the person, but how do you explain something like that when you, when you don't know where to begin?
0: Well, uh, I, I, there's something that some people say, and that is they say the missionary is the message. I totally disagree with that. And I've got a biblical grounds for not saying that. Because Paul said we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the message. And you can be the most wonderful person in the whole world, and it's not going to make people go, oh, I wish I was a Christian. (laughs) Mother Teresa was one of, according to people's estimation, was a great, wonderful person, but she didn't lead people to Christ. She said that you're okay, so you can be a Buddhist, you can be whatever. Okay? So Mother Teresa being nice, didn't make people Christian. The God has chosen to use the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So I don't get intimidated. You know, in answer to your question, Kathy, I don't get. In, yeah, uh, could you bring it back to Bill? Uh, don't get intimidated. If you have to feel like you are a perfect Christian before you dare witness to anybody, how soon are you going to witness to anybody? (Laughter) Not, not anytime soon. And if I think, well, gee, I witness to somebody, and then they see me, whatever, getting mad and honk the horn at somebody in traffic, or is something I do bad, yeah, yeah. Well, then they're not going to want to be a Christian. You it's, it's just, you can't think that way. You just got to ask God to change your life. Pray this prayer, Lord. Work was pleasing to you in my life by grace. But you're the message, not me. All right, Bill.
2: In uh, Hebrews 13.21, in the King James, it says, uh, make you perfect in every good work to do his will. In the international version, it says um, uh, about equipping the saints, equip you for every, everything good for doing his will. There's a great emphasis in the church today about equipping the saints and they have these schools of the prophets and all that, and they, they, they claim that, that perfection is through the acquisition of, of gifts. Could you comment on, on what the Scripture says as okay. far as what it means?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I see that a lot, in a, and it's in a lot of circles besides the prophets movement. There, For example, in the uh, SHAPE program in the Purpose Driven Church, they have a P for personality and you take a Myers-Briggs. And then even in the seminary, I had to take I had to take Myers-Briggs. And then I had to take a spiritual gift assessment. And there's this idea that you have to go through some scientific process to figure out your gift. Or you have to go through some process that some man-made process to become this perfected saint. But that's not how it happens. In fact, we know there's different gifts, but there's no program to figure out what they are. You just go about serving God in the local church. It'll become evident that you don't need to go examine self. And, and you know why I think these things are popular? Because they're geared toward the unregenerated, and people will like to study self. Find out about who you are. I want to find out who I am. Well, I'll tell you, I took all those things, and I, I tell you, they don't work. I had to even take, I had to even take this, uh, MMP, uh, what, yeah, whatever that thing to see if I was sane. Well, I'll tell you, it doesn't work. It uh, it came back that I was okay. So there, I couldn't believe that. And I, 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 yeah, I'm okay, you're okay. And then I got this thing. I don't I can't remember what in the world, that Myers-Briggs, it was the goofiest thing. But when I got done taking the thing, all I know is I'm eccentric because I was way up in a corner somewhere. But I have never once figured out what good that ever did me to have to take that to get through seminary. It's just like, okay, so what? I'm going to go preach the gospel. I don't know what kind of personality I have. Yeah, and you don't go to the school of prophets. or But see, those things go on endlessly and it doesn't actually equip anybody to serve God. What does equip people are the means of grace. The Word of God, prayer, fellowship, and communion, things like that. And we emphasize here, if we provide the means, the spiritual food, That God has ordained, God will use His spiritual food to feed His sheep to cause them to grow. Because God is the one doing it. If you believe God does it, you'll feed the flock the food. If you believe man does it, you'll set up some MMPI program to test everybody and see what their problems are. (laughs) We've got we got we got one problem. It's called sin, and there's one solution: the blood of Jesus. Okay, Um, upstairs we're going to study Luke 3. God bless you. Uh, We'll have a time of fellowship.